0: Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fujimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, Trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. This is a special announcement. On October 12th, that is 10 days from today, our first Global Black Affairs Conference will be convened. It will be a virtual conference, and it's free, but you need to register. So to register, go to blackmatters.com yourblackmatters.com, and click on conference on the menu. Due to the conference, we'll skip the podcast for next week. And then the following week, we'll make the recording of the conference available to everyone. So our next podcast will be broadcasted on October 24th. Can you believe we've featured 10 episodes already? In case you've missed any of the episodes, you can also catch up or listen to any of your favorite speaker during the next two weeks. I would also like to hear from you. So you can email me at Francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Francesca, F-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-A at yourblackmatters.com. Thank you for your support. And don't forget to spread the good news to your contacts. I have known Vicky for a little over a year now. We just hit it off when we met. I'm so glad to have Vicky as our guest today. She's white, as in pure milk is white. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't do well in the sunshine. (laughs) a very unique background, which I'm certain it will give us a deeper perspective on the subject. So, Vicky, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, Francesca, thank you for inviting me. I know we're going to have a fantastic conversation together today.
0: Definitely. So, Vicky, let's start. Do you mind introducing yourself formally and include what you do professionally? Because I know I won't do justice to it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I, I'm Vicki Shillington. I grew up in South Africa uh, under the era of apartheid as a, as a white kid. I left there in my early twenties and I spent most of my adult working career in, in London, which is where I got together with my husband, who's uh, also white from, from New York. And seven years ago in 2013, we decided we needed sunshine and a beach. And so made our way to Los Angeles and Jim always says that as a New Yorker, he should officially hate L.A. because anyone who went to L.A. from New York never came back. So he figures either they got shot or they loved it. And luckily, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, professionally, I suppose you could describe me as a culture shifter. I, I work with CEOs and, and leaders and, and their teams on staying adaptable, creating the foundations of what it means to create an adaptable organization. So that they can we can respond as the world gets hotter, flatter, more crowded. A partner at ThinkShift, where we're all about mindset shifting.
0: Thank you. There was absolutely no way I would have been able to capture <laughs> all that. You know, I would not do justice doing so thank you. Uh, <laughs> so now, Vicky, you introduced a word that I want you to break down, apartheid. This word I'm not even sure many people know what it means, especially this generation, my kids, I, I know they do not know what apartheid is all about. So can you tell us in layman's terms or what people can actually understand when you say apartheid? What, what is it? Is it an English word?
1: I think it comes from from Dutch. The apart piece means separate and the height means hood. So it's separate, separateness from the hood. And it really began in the 1940s in South Africa. So well what a lot of people don't know about south africa is that there are you know there are many many black tribes and there are two white tribes and then there are indian tribes and other tribes and i'm going to call them tribes um, for a very particular reason but in the in the white population there are actually two tribes some are descendants of the british and english who would go when when in the days of the shipping industry heading over to India to get spices and various things. They'd pass through South Africa as one of their routes and they would stop off there. And the Dutch did the same. And so the the white population is made up of the English and the Dutch and the heritage of those. And from what I understand from apartheid, when I look at the derivations of the words, you know, it was driven a lot by the national party at the time. And it was a, a white minority governed South Africa So, you know, I don't know what the numbers are right now in South Africa, but certainly when I lived there, there was about 5 million white folks and about 40 million black folks. I think those numbers have increased, but the white population was definitely the minority, but they were in charge. And having come from Europe, they felt there was this need, I guess, because they were the minorities. And I'm going to guess here, I don't really know what happened, to create a degree of segregation so that they could feel safe. So in the US, we had slavery and it wasn't set up like that, but it was definitely an apartness, which is what what it practically meant is there were beaches for whites and then there were beaches for non-whites. There were restrooms for whites and there were restrooms for non-whites. There were schools for whites, not very many schools for non-whites. So it was definitely, talk about white privilege. It was definitely, you know, it was definitely a white privilege. So, and the, the apartheid was law. If you were non-white, you had to carry what they called a book. It was like your identity document. You'd be stopped in the streets. You had to have your, you know, your document um, to share, show where you were and why you were there. And what that meant was that because there wasn't the access to education and, and you know, the different things we consider very normal, that the way of providing income for folks had to be through white folks helping out black folks if they could choose. But this meant it was very menial type jobs. It was black folks taking up cleaning jobs in the homes or gardening or, you know, whatever it might be. But a, a lot of white folks would do that. They would do their piece. You know, if they weren't part of the system and didn't believe in it, they tried their best to help those around them. And they'd take them into their homes and they would be living quarters. I know when, when I grew up with a fairly middle-class family. My dad was an electrical engineer at the city council. But because we were white, I recognized that when I moved to the UK. I was like, oh God, if I'd grown up in the UK, I'd be very low to middle-class, probably somewhere in Sheffield, as opposed to in the upper echelons of London somewhere. (laughs) It wouldn't, in the nice neighborhoods, it wouldn't have been that kind of living at all. But because we were whites, we, we were very privileged. So we had property here. It was about half an acre three quarters of an acre you know we had living quarters for uh, our cleaner and gardener and so we we lived a very privileged life even though materially we didn't have a huge amount so for us takeout would be a treat for our birthdays you know we didn't have a lot of financial wealth but but just the day-to-day because of the way the system was set up you knew you were as a quote wealthy that's what it meant practically and and Between the whites, there was also that that segregation and even between the blacks. So everybody was segregated because it's a large country, not large compared to the U.S., but certainly large compared to Europe. And what it meant was I never actually came across a white Afrikaans speaking South African until I moved to London. So not only was I segregated from black folks and Indian folks, I also was segregated from other white folks. So you literally grew up in your little bubble, not knowing how everybody else grew up or what they were going through. And I recently read Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. And it was it was eye-opening to me that, you know, his book is not written from pity or woe be me or anything like that. It was just factual. And in his very funny way of writing as he does when he speaks. But it was eye-opening to be like, oh, that's what it's like to grow up on the other side. I just, just have no idea. And I think that's the challenge. When you're segregated, you just have no idea.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Vicky, when you were describing the law in South Africa during the period of apartheid and you were saying the whites have separate schools, black have separate schools, even though not that many separate restaurants and all that, you know what was coming to my mind? the time of slavery in the United States. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was slavery. At least yeah. in the United States, what you just described was slavery. Don't, don't you think? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean it wasn't it wasn't black folks working for white folks in that way or for no money, you know, but they but they were in a degree because they weren't earning very much money, you know. So it was a different it probably felt like a more pleasant form of slavery. But in terms of oppression and everything else, 100%, you know, okay, they might be free. They, they don't have to be anywhere and work for anyone. They're not owned by anyone. But in terms of their potential, their opportunities,
0: yeah, you know, it, it was as bad as slavery because there wasn't much. I actually am looking at it a little bit differently, even though you mentioned that they weren't owned by anyone. But I think all those 40 million Blacks were actually owned by the five million whites. Collective ownership—that's yeah. what it was, not individual ownership, but it was yeah. a collective ownership just based on the system, the way the system yeah. was set up. Right? I think you're right. I think you're right. Pretty interesting to to uh, draw that correlation as well, because I never yeah. I never looked at it that way. So, as you, yeah, go ahead, Vicky. You wanted to say something.
1: You know what I loved about Trevor Noah's book is, you know, it's called Born a Crime. Into racial relationships were not, were were illegal. So him being born, being in South Africa and then a black mother, he was, he was illegal. You know, it was illegal to have mixed relations. And this is, I mean, I don't know how old Trevor Noah was, but you know, probably in the eighties. I mean, this is not in the fifties or forties. This is fairly recent. And I'm guessing, I don't know the history and the details, but I'm guessing until apartheid ended, which was in 94. That's not that long ago in the bigger scheme of things.
0: It wasn't, It wasn't at all. Yeah so, as you were describing this i'm seeing a correlation between what you described and what's going on among blacks and whites in the united states
1: yeah there's a slight difference because the majority is correct you're 100% correct but but there is a difference now in south africa because of the end of apartheid and the truth and reconciliation commission which you know mandela being the wonderful leader that he was you know, he a wonderful quote by him is, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy, then he becomes your partner. And so it was all about forgiveness and love. And not that everybody could love that, but that was from the highest, the highest form of government. And as a result, you know, when you experience South Africa today, you know, the, the upper class, the upper middle class is all black now. And so there's, again, a very small portion that's black, uh, a few whites still there, but a lot of whites struggle these days, and they, they understand why. You know, they don't get the same opportunities. It's harder as a white now to get into university and get good jobs. The majority of blacks are still desperately poor. They thought the the government change to the African National Congress would mean that they would suddenly all have access to everything. But when you look at the the five million who were paying taxes, and the forty million who didn't have the means to pay taxes—you know, there isn't enough money, there aren't enough resources to go around. You know, it's it, uh, the law; the laws just don't work that way. There isn't enough, uh, and we need to get resourcing. So, it didn't end up the way they thought it would, which is, you know, we change the government and suddenly we all prosper. It's actually no; we all we've got to go through generations of this, generations of educating, getting great jobs, creating a, opportunity in the economy, and a lot of historical, you know, stuff has to die off both in the white and the Black community, because there's a lot of anger, rightly so, from the Black community. But a lot of that has to ultimately die off so that the younger generations can can create the environment that they want to live in.
0: You know, what was also interesting is that, so I understand that apartheid ended in South Africa with the help of the United States and the, the United Kingdom, uh, because they post some economic sanctions on them, and it made things very difficult for them. So anyway, that was kind of the the tipping point for them. So it ended. Now, isn't it ironic that the United States and the United Kingdom that forced South Africa to end apartheid are still in this state, state of George Floyd, state of Breonna Taylor, and many others with and without names? What's your thought about Americans' influence on the abolishments of apartheid and the state of affairs in, in, you know, even in South Africa today and even here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, that's a superb insight and question. And, and you know, when my husband often asked me, because him growing up in New York, um, he was born in the 50s, he's seen a lot. It cuts back to the question and the thought around, you know, when, when slavery was out there or apartheid was there, it was very overt. Like you knew what it was and it was not good. But you knew it, you could see it, you could touch it, you could taste it. It was, whether it was part of the law or not, it was there. You know, it was very, very visible. When slavery was abolished and things moved on, the challenge from my perspective is is that it's no longer overt, <laughs> but the behaviours are still there. And so, but it's, I'm not going to say it's worse now because it's not worse. I mean, we're a million times further forward, But but from a systemic perspective, it is almost worse because it's hidden. And when something's hidden, you can't touch, taste, or feel it. And so you don't really know it's there. And I think that's what's been so eye-opening for so many white folks over the last few months. But there were all these assumptions. It wasn't wasn't that personal. You know, when you start to see a video of somebody with their foot on somebody else's neck, that's personal. You know, that's hard to, that's hard, that's not skin color. That's human life. And it's, it's mystifying for black folks to say, how have you not seen this for 400 years? But for white folks, for whatever reason, there just hasn't been this, the same visibility, the same acknowledgement, you know, there might be an odd thing in the news, but it's too general. It's too out there. It happens to white folks. It happens. You didn't know that it was literally because of what's happening. And what's, what's happened as a result of these different events is there's a wake and awakening where people are starting to ask questions. I know the CEOs that I coach, we're leaning into these organizations, these white male CEOs of, okay, I've got to go and have a conversation that I've never been trained to have. HR's always said it's a no-no. It's too too dangerous to talk about the session we're having now. You know, you're black and I'm white. Usually, you're African American and I'm Caucasian. You know, we we can't we can't say these things. But now we're like, no, we're gonna get in and say it as it is. Right. And it's making them really uncomfortable because they have skills of a third grader. They don't know how to have these conversations, but they can't not have these conversations. And you know, what's happening to me as I uncover hearing your stories and and others. It's what it's like day to day walking around in your skin. And it's been absolutely shocking to me that, you know, when I think of yourself or my friend Angela or Brian or Regina, these are, you know, Angela worked in the White House with Obama and and Brian advises CEOs and Regina was the global head of HR. Very impressive individuals, yourself as well, great leadership roles, highly educated, phenomenal individuals. What you deal with day in doubt because of the color of your skin is frankly, it's been eye-opening because I had no idea. And, you know, shame on me not saying, well, what's it like walking around day-to-day in your skin that's going to make me deeply uncomfortable to know?
0: But who but it would hadn't... ask that question, Vicky? I mean, who would ever, ever ask that question? I mean, I would never ask you, what is it like walking in your skin color? Well, and I think that's what's
1: kind of cool about what's happening now is we all needing to start to do that because we all have stories. And, and right now you know, the emphasis on Black Lives Matter, but everybody has their story. You know, we've, we don't need to go into all the other, you know, minorities and things that are out there, but everybody has their story. And as if we as humans can start to be a little bit more curious about each other and on the other side, be willing to share what we're experiencing, like, hey, do you know that this is what I experienced today and letting others in on our experience then the other person starts to have empathy and understanding. So it's not general. Because when it's general, we can't change anything. We don't feel anything. When it's personal, now I feel. And if I feel in my body, now I, now I know what needs to change because it's meaningful to me. You know, it's not out there, not part of my world. It's personal.
0: Yep, absolutely. I want to ask you about white privilege. You, you touched on that. But tell us some examples of what they are. Because as a Black Lady, okay. I've heard it before. I've experienced some things that I thought to myself, okay, I'm almost certain if I'm white, this is not going to be the case for me. But I don't know exactly what is white privilege. Can you just break it down a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, I think the best way to do that is is through an example. So, um, you know, when I moved from South Africa to the UK in my early twenties, and I was traveling on a South African passport. Being from Africa, I had to get visas for every single country. So I became very familiar with embassies and the bureaucracy and everything like that. And my very first experience in them as I'm looking around and you're watching, you know, because you're all sitting together in a room. This is all (laughs) pre-COVID. You're all sitting together and you're being called up to the counter and you're having your little interviews or whatever it it was. It was very evident to me. As I'm sitting in these embassy halls with people from all countries, all skin colors, challenges with English, accents, I mean, you name it, became very evident that, oh, I'm so grateful to have this skin color. I know I'm being treated differently. I could tell. I could tell I was having a much easier experience through that whatever they put in place to to limit people from traveling to other countries and as I would travel through borders in other countries as well uh, I've got one very extreme example we used to go skiing in the south of France the first weekend of December every year as a consultant at IBM and lots of friends um, and then on at Arthur Anderson. And we used to bring all these people. Everyone would go traveling and we'd go skiing. It was before the season started. So it was more cost effective. And we'd get up to a hundred people show up for this, you know, first weekend. It was the highest resort, Valteran in the south of France and the Alps. And it was wonderful. But I was so sick and tired at the stage, probably three, four years in of getting visas, you know, because damn it, I've got to get a visa every time. (laughs) And so what I realized is, is you could fly into Switzerland without a visa. So they don't need strong border patrol because you've got the little ladies that (laughs) patrol and and the Mossad will say that one of their only operations that ever got blown up was through the little ladies you know watching people come in and out of the house and like calling up like who's who's in and out of that house so I I you know I'm a clever girl I switched on and I was like oh you know if I fly into Switzerland they don't check my passport I fly into Geneva I can drive across the border to France they don't really check you know when you're driving across borders I don't need a visa. I'm going to do that. And I did that for years. And I was working with some Indian colleagues at Al Anderson, and I invited them to come along. Oh, you don't need visas. You know, come on, this is great. They got to the resort, and they were almost white. You know, their brown skin had turned white. They were so shaken. And like, I can't believe you made us do that. You know, that was so irresponsible. What have we been caught? You look European. We don't look European. But it was the first time I was like, Oh yeah, you don't look European. You got brown skin, because <laughs> for me it doesn't enter my equation. You know, it, it's it's. I'm always looking at the soul. You know, I don't look at what it's like to be in your skin, and I think that's the challenge is most of us don't look at that, and it was really really prevalent. To me and, and to me, that's why privilege. It's 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 so subtle in everything that we experience day in day out that we don't even know you know, that example is fairly extreme when I talk about visas. But I know, Francesca, you've seen it going, you know, for job interviews, or, you know, whatever it is, you get through the screening process, great, because of your name. But you turn up and you can just tell it's done, you know, before you said a word. Yep, yep. You can, you, you can just see it in their eyes. And, and, yep. and I think that's the challenge is, you know, I, I've, I don't want to take the conversation to this area. But a lot of people have said to me, you know, the, the challenge with being female and there's all this prejudice against female leaders. And I was like, no, I've never experienced that. I don't think of myself as a female or white. I'm just a leader. Now that's how I see myself. But then because it's such a big topic, and especially here in the US, you know, these topics are a lot more prevalent in the US than they ever were in the UK. I'm really paying attention and I'm watching how men treat men and how men treat women in my worlds. And I'm starting to notice the subtleties. And, and I think that's it. They're so subtle. They're so micro, you know, microaggressions, micro-tensions, micro... You can't put your finger on it, but you can tell that's a little bit different how that conversation went. Uh -uh, It it is because I'm a woman, slightly different things happen um, than if I was a man. And Mm -hmm.
0: that gets exacerbated when you are Black. Black male, Black female. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's very subtle. And as you were sharing that, Vicky, I'm thinking... Okay, so you have the white privilege, and then you have what we call or label as racism. Not all whites are racist, but all whites are privileged. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a
1: really important distinction because you know you might be a very poor white. We're not talking about the you know, the affluence of living in Malibu with Bentleys. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact that you just showing up with a white skin means you're seen differently and you're given different experiences. And that's privilege. That's privilege at the end of the day, because you're not being discriminated against in the smallest possible way that's going to influence the course of your life. And to me, that's the conversation we need to be having, because we all need to look around for that, because that's when we can see what needs to change.
0: Absolutely. And... When we're talking about that, and I'm thinking about equality, blacks want equity, blacks want justices, right? They want all that. And um, there's this wonderful thing we call white privilege that now we want that privilege, which is limited, right? It's, it's, it's pretty limited. The opportunities is limited. So now we want to share it. We want to share it to all the others. Now, as a white lady, white executive. I want you to talk to me from your heart, Vicky. How is that making you feel, just hearing that, that now you need to share this thing? How is it making you feel?
1: You know, for me, it's probably not a good example because I don't need a huge, huge amount in my life. You know, I, I like nice things. There's no question, but it does. It's not what drives me. What drives me is what I call creating a fabulous world where People are continually adaptable and living the potential of their dreams, no matter who they are. So for me personally, if I had to give up something to help create that, I would do it in a heartbeat. So I'm not a great example. And I I say that from my absolute heart, because I would give up everything that I potentially own if I knew I could have that impact in the world, because that's way more important to to me as a human being. There is a potential loss. And I think that's really relevant for a lot of people, because okay, you're happy for others to have some stuff, but not at the cost of yourself. Now, America and a lot of the Western European countries are set up to be individualistic societies. America is an extreme of that. It's all about the individual. There's no collective. There's no collective national health service. You know, there's, there's none of that. It's each individual. And every time anything's tried to be introduced, that is more about the collective. The whole system rebels. It's not how America was designed. And so what we're talking about here is... Well, there are only so many resources, if we think about it, from the material world to go around. You know, if there are, we were talking earlier, you know, if there are 8 billion people on the planet and 2 or 3 billion are white, and they have access to a lot of this privilege, how do you share that with 8, 8 billion people? They just aren't the resources. And do they want to? And that's where the challenge kicks in, is if we can come up with solutions that will not make them give up something. I think everyone would be like, yeah, let's do that. You know I'm in? <laughs> But as soon as it's a, a, hey, let me give up something, we go back to square one because very few people truly want to give up something. And even for me, for my heart, you know, I'm not going to do it for best endeavors. Someone has to guarantee me that if I give up everything, it's going to create the change that I want. And if it does, then I'll happily do it. But if it's just do it to help this and that, I'll be like, well, (laughs) it's not big enough. It has to be big enough for me to want to do that. It's almost righting the wrongs from the past in some small way, in whatever way that can be that each person is trying to do. And I was telling you earlier that, you know, my dad was an electrical engineer um, at the Johannesburg City Council, and he watched the security guard who looked after the cars become the CEO. And he didn't have any resentments or bad feelings. Or Naturally, from a business hat perspective, you're thinking, well, that's a highly inefficient journey to make. But it's not really about efficiency. It's about... How do you give something up to get something for others? And that's what we have to see a little bit more of. And some countries are doing that through policies like affirmative action. But something has to change because it's going to be very hard, especially in individualistic societies, to ask, to hope, to pray that people do it. Because they won't. You know, we're in a capitalistic society. It's all about the individual. How well can I do and how how great is my little life? It's not about the collective.
0: Absolutely. Let me ask you something a little personal. When did you first realize the full impacts of racism? I, I knew from
1: growing up, even as a kid in South Africa, that the system wasn't right. And, you know, I left as soon as I could after university uh to, to go to Europe. In my head I described it that hey, I love the architecture and the history and the culture. I'm a highly ambitious individual, you know, South Africa's you know, a dot point on most big companies, budgets. It's not where things are happening. I need to be in the heart of where it's all happening. London's it. But if I have to be truly honest, you know, it was the the wrongness of 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 what I was living and 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 going through. It was just so uncomfortable for me that every cell in my body needed to be out of that environment. And it was interesting to me as I watched different South Africans have different journeys to different countries and a lot of them would go back because the resources in South Africa are magnificent. A lot of it resembles California, it's a beautiful country, gorgeous food, friendly people, anything's possible there you know there's a lot of fabulous opportunities there. but for me, I would rather live in a and the homes are big, there's space like America you know I'd rather live in a small um, wet, gray England, <laughs> where I could walk down the street and feel safe and things, you know, I was living next to, right? I was living next to a Jamaican and, you know, I, my colleagues were Indian and, you know, you name it. I'd rather live in that society where, whether it was equal or not, I don't know, but it felt a lot more equal than what I'd grown up um, to in a lot more safe than what I'd grown up. I just needed to be in that environment that was much better for my soul. And, that fight or flight of growing up in that environment um, my whole life stayed with me till about a year ago when I worked with a healer to get rid of that in my body. I could feel it leaving my body and realizing how, how deeply traumatized I was growing up in that environment, as even a privileged one, just knowing at the cellular level, just strong. And so, but but to be honest, for me, I only really started to understand all of this and I'm only dipping my toe in in the last few months. And that's weird as someone who changes organizations for a living, lived in so many countries, have so many wonderful friends, but it's as I hearing your story and Brian's story and Angela's story and Regina's stories, and it hurt me deeply in hearing your stories, how you worry about your sons and your little grandson we talked about. And, and whew, yeah, it's, it's just inconceivable to me that that's what you, you lived through and it's embarrassing to me to not even know that that was going on and I have never even thought to ask and these are my friends that I had no idea that this was <sighs> yeah, this was the experience
0: you. yeah, yeah, thank you thank you Vicky for you know, really going deep and um, expressing your thoughts uh, on this subject it is very emotional Vicky because <laughs> <sighs> Blacks live through this every single day. It's, it's a lifetime. and you know, the, the interesting part of this is that many Blacks, even the privileged Blacks, every single one of them, they live through this. My goal on this podcast is to move away from, I'm not shying away from the feeling. I mean, we're digging into that feeling, uh, Vicky. I'm not shying away from the feeling. But We have a lot of platforms where we're exploring that feeling, where we're talking about the feeling. But I really want to get into what can we do—not just blacks, but white and brown—as a society, as humanity. What can we do if animals are doing what we're describing? We would not be able to tolerate those animals. If dogs are doing what we're describing, we would not be able to domesticate dogs. So. We have to begin to shift. And I want to ask you a quick question. Since you actually talk to executives, what's going on in their mind? You touched on it mm. early, uh, earlier on, but I want to understand, first of all, what's going on in their mind? What are you hearing from them? How are you helping them?
1: That, that's that's a great question. So these these white C-suite males, you know, middle-aged, are having a really, really tough time, you know, like they did with the Me Too movement, because they're not versed and educated in this. And they're all not all, but a lot of them think they're well-intentioned. And, you know, hey, I've got a diverse organization. I'm good. I'm not a racist, right? That's that's what we hear all the time. And I am, you know, making them lean in, like, no, you have to have tunnels and you have to be having conversations because people are experiencing a lot And you need to be able to talk about these conversations and your views. And we can't just be like, don't want to touch that. And so, but it goes much deeper than even the conversations and, you know, how are we hiring? You know, are we diverse in terms of our hiring and have we done some unconscious bias training? And if you do that, I mean, these are good things. And it definitely start there. There's no question about that, but that's checking a box. It doesn't change what we're talking about. What you have to do is go really, really deep. And there's four ways, Organizations and these executives have to go deep. The first is they have to build, you know, the foundations. And and the first is to get everybody to understand the magnitude of what we're talking about. And step one is to lean into these conversations that they've never had before and create a safe space conversations where people can start to talk about the experience and create safe agreements. And then start to get into well, what are all of our unconscious biases? And then starting to rewire them. And then. And then it gets really tough because they have to start making decisions. Am I going to play checkers or chess? It's going to cost me millions of dollars. And it's going to be two, three, four, five-year program that we've got to instill because we've got to think about recruitment. All right. So where does inequity start in sourcing? What are the filters we're applying that might be misusing the cultural fit inappropriately? The hiring decisions, you know, the the checks and balances. A year later, uh, how many are thriving, you know, that we've hired? We think about that the next pillar of, of managing, you know, have to reinvent, managing. How do you manage respectfully with the cultural context that we're talking about and the understanding of cultural history and the empathy and and being willing to have what we call feed forward conversations? And, you know, not feedback because that people, most people don't like that word, but feed forward and, and not avoid it because we can just avoid it and say, oh, I can't say that she's black. You know, I could do it with a cultural nuances of, of what that means and have a performance system that that works not everyone gets meets expectations because that's just the easy way out and they get their three percent and I, I don't want to deal with it it's it's making it real based on on goals and outcomes and helping them avoid the landmines and then the fourth pillar. There is, is leadership conviction. You know, what are you willing to stand for? What is the business equation? This is not a marketing campaign. Giving diversity, equality, and this whole agenda, inclusion teeth. You know, what's what's the authority behind, you know, is rather than just one person who's got this title. It has to be in everything we do. And they're going to, have to be some hard trade-offs. You know, some people will think you're crazy for what you're doing. Some people will think you need to do more of it. Like, how do you thread all of that and have conviction and see it through in the long run? term and, and really think about what is winning. And I'm talking about this from a uh, company perspective, but, you know, extrapolate that to economies, right? You, you've got to be willing to slow down to do the right things, which is going to cost money, you know, as you start to uncover all these things, it doesn't just happen, to come out the other side. And therefore, as individuals, you know, what individuals can start doing, which is what I've started to do, is to ask the question and get curious, uh, what is it like to live in your skin day in, day out? that's going to make me deeply uncomfortable. And just get to know each other as humans. Because once we do that, we walk away with this whole level of understanding. I had no idea that that's what you experience. That's where I am putting my money and, and the bang for the buck. Because you know, until we do that, and on this panel I was on, you know, I was challenged with that. No, that's not enough. And I was talking about this one CEO back to what are they experiencing? A white CEO at one of my clients was called out for making a comment about feeling unsafe in a particular part of our valet and a few months ago you would never have said that because the area does have elements of unsafety but now it's seen that he's making a racist slur in some way you know my comment was it's it's not okay to make him feel unsafe because if he's not feeling safe he's going to retreat literally into his bedroom because that's where we are these days if they start to retreat no change is going to happen and she got really angry with me and she was like well this is not the white agenda this is about us this is our time and I said I get that it is your time but I guarantee you if you make these white CEOs uncomfortable and not allow them to feel safe and everything they say gets misinterpreted and, and not that he shouldn't be more careful and think about his words, get all that. But if we don't make them feel safe, nothing's going to change. They are the majority. They will be the majority for the foreseeable future. They have to feel. And only when they feel, will they know how to change. So that's a lot. I gave you a lot there.
0: I really appreciate that thought process. So you brought in the stakeholders and the fact that they need to feel safe about the decisions they're making. And the fact that they, they need to understand the ROI, the return on investment, is not just in the near term or the short term, but this is more of a strategic move for the sustainability of their organizations, uh, in, even into the longer term. Most so the world is becoming very close and the marketplace is beyond a physical location, right? Uh, businesses need to look beyond their shores Um, That's a great insight, and I appreciate that, Vicky. So, Vicky, I have a personal request for you. Can you speak to the soul of our black listeners, considering where they've been, where they are right now, and what could potentially happen if we keep the status quo? Hmm. Hmm...
1: Yeah, I'm going to end with the Mandela quote. If you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy. Then he becomes your partner.
0: So apropos, Vicky, I really want to thank you for sharing your heart. I know this was a tough one for you, uh, very difficult and uncomfortable topics. And I didn't really plan to go this route, but thank you for going on the journey with me, Vicky.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a it's been a joy to explore this with you. I definitely. I definitely was anxious coming in because it's not a topic I know how to talk about. And, but you always made me feel very safe, Francesca. And that's why I, I feel comfortable going into areas where I wouldn't with other people. And I, I so appreciate you for that. Oh,
0: thank you, Vicky. That was really kind of you. I know you all agree with me that it was a very difficult one for Vicky on a personal level. She took us uh, through her world anyway, her world from South Africa. And her journey as an executive and how she guides her clients uh, in navigating this uh, this new environment. I appreciate her commitment to moving the course of this human endeavor forward. So what are the critical points from Vicky? First, she said, slow down and do the right things. I believe everyone can benefit from this, whether as an individual or an organization. Also, whether you're black, white, or brown, it really doesn't matter. Uh, Everyone can appreciate uh, Vicky's recommendation here. Uh, Slow down and assess what you're doing to make sure they are the right things. Secondly, she spoke about feeling safe. She suggested that you need to make the executives feel safe so that they don't retreat and wait it out. If they feel unsafe or attacked, nothing is going to change. So let's uh, make them feel safe. And uh, thirdly, and finally, be curious and ask questions. She says she's doing the same thing herself, asking those uh, very difficult questions you ordinarily will take for granted. Vicky, thank you for your contribution to the history we are making together. I'm excited to be a part of it with you. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, God bless you as well. And may God bless you in the United States of America. See you next time. Bye-bye.